Welcome, fathers. I think um, <clears throat> what I want to do is kind of continue a little bit where we left off in that in that last session, and talk about um, s- sort of the idea is we in a. Well, I'm going to rewind. Start over. We talk about the idea of um, developing certain values and character traits within our children. Can you hear me in the back? Okay. Um, and, uh, and we talk about goals that we have set. This is like, we have an objective. This is what we're doing with our children. And I, I didn't um, expand upon this idea, but as it relates to the gifts, talents, abilities that our children have, that's going to affect um, how, that goal, how that goal is expressed. So if my goal is for my kids to love God and develop the, um, or discover the purpose he has for their life, and it's like all of a sudden I have this child that's like so really intelligent and just like his, his math skills are off the chart. It's like, well, that's gonna direct the path that we go to meet that goal. We got a child who's tremendously athletic, push pause, okay? Let's, we wanna have realistic goals. We don't wanna squash a kid. Who knows, if you're, you have an athletic child, he might end up being the star of the team and get a scholarship. We also wanna have realistic goals that so that might not happen. But if they do have those, then we're gonna go in that direction. Uh, my oldest son is uh, gifted athletically and um, he, his interests were in the more extreme type sports, skateboarding and surfing. And so, um, and I think in all reality, he had uh, the, the talent level to become a professional surfer and go broke, okay? <coughs> now, now, that doesn't mean that all professional surfers go broke. It just means that his talent level, he could have surfed professionally, but li- the likelihood of him being a top-tier professional surfing athlete and living off that was v- like probably not. Um, and so part of our, his, you know, his development in his years from like 12 to 18 we spent a lot of time at surf contests. And my background is competitive surfing. And so we, that was really where my son was discipled. That's where you know, we would go surfing and we would, would you know, navigate through this, this life. So his, our goal for him, love God, determine what, you're, what God's calling is for your life, had a track that was different than another son who, I've, I have twin sons who have zero interest at all in ocean activity. <laughs> Like they, they, we'd go to the beach and they would, you know, be waiting for when we'd go home. And, uh, and they, they can surf. You put a board in their hand, they paddle out and catch a wave and ride it. They just don't want to. And so, <clears throat> so that path was different for them. Does that make sense? Had a, um, I have a nephew and he was one of those, those kids who, and maybe you have a child like this, who it, it's, it's not hard for them to remember things. It's hard for them to forget things. It's like, oh my gosh, how do you remember? We said that in passing four months ago and you're holding us to it. And um, very intelligent. I would, 
they lived in California. Um, Christy's whole family ended up moving to Florida um, about eight years after we did. And those, so those first eight years, whenever I would go back to California for something, uh, when the pastor's conference for Calvary, um, it was always towards the end of the school year, and it always um, coincided with the, the spelling bee for the school, and their son every year was the finalist. And so I would sneak in to watch my nephew at the spelling bee spelling words at seven that I didn't even know were words. And <clears throat> super intelligent, mathematic, and, and so his, the track that his parents put him on to reach that goal was different than the track. He was in, he was in the, the, this academic um, track in high school that, you know, that, that moved him in a direction. He went on to do, um, uh, go to the University of Florida, get his degree there. He works in the financial field now. And so that track that he went on, their goal was for their son to love God and fulfill his purposes. The track was different. Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. And so with, with our children, we're, we're looking at that. What's our goal? If my goal is just, I want my son to be successful. I want my son to, I want my son to, I want my children to have more than we had. And we're, you know, we rub nickels together to try to make dimes and we're barely making. I don't want my kids to do that. Or I wasn't able, I wasn't afforded an education. So my kids are going to get a college degree. If that in itself becomes the goal, do you understand? Like we have, the goal's wrong. That's the track towards the goal. And so we're discovering that. It may be, I grew up um, in a family of educators. My dad uh, had a doctorate in psychology. He headed up the psychology department at Long Beach State University. My mom was a, a university professor. My younger brother uh, has his doctorate degree in mathematics as a professor at Clemson University. My, my uh, my uh, older brother uh, has a master's degree in environmental biology, worked for the state of uh, California, um, and I got a two-year associate degree from the community college down the road because the Lord got a hold of me and put me in a different track. But that, that background, that upbringing, it kind of rubbed me. And my, ho like my whole adult life, I felt like I, f I need to f get a degree. Like not because um, I'm going to do a new path in life, but just because it haunted me. <laughs> so, so I went out and, and uh, finished up a degree in the last couple of years. I, I, I graduated with my bachelor's degree at the same time that my, my, um, one of my twin sons graduated with his bachelor's degree. <laughs> like he got his degree a week before I did. And, uh, and so the, that became a part of my life it was something that was important to my parents, and I kind of felt like, in honor of my parents, I went ahead and did it as an adult. Now, the reason I'm telling you that is that their goal for me might have been one thing, God's goal for me was something different. Since they didn't know the Lord, they didn't see that. So, so I think it's important that we understand that. Now, I wanna talk a little bit in our time together here. By the way, quick pause. You're missing out on the good on the good lesson. <laughs> so, not sure, not sure why you guys got set in the back of the room listening to me when you could hear what Christy has to say. But I do think, you know, a mom speaking to moms about the role of a mom is tremendously valuable. And perhaps a dad speaking to dads about the role of a dad can also be 
um, extremely valuable because we play, uh, uh, we're together, you know, you and your spouse are together if, and in this objective of raising kids that love God and fulfill his purpose for their life. But how we manage that, we have a different role. And this is not everybody's story, but this is the more common story that mom is with the children a whole lot more than dad is with the children. That on a normal basis, and I don't mean normal that the other is abnormal, I just mean more common, is that dad goes to work and mom is caring for the children. It's not, it, it's not, it's, if, you're, if that's not your story, it doesn't mean your story's wrong. It's just that's the more common approach. And, uh, and so as a result, <coughs> the, as a dad, I'm finding time with my kids. It's, uh, when, I, uh, when I was a teacher, you know, I'm waking up and heading out the door before my kids are up and going. And I'm coming home at the end of the day and I've got dinner time and a, and a few hours with the kids before they go to bed. And then I'm back to, a t- uh, do you have any teachers in the room? Okay, so you know that it's the time at school and then multiple hours <laughs> at home, um, either, either prepping or, or um, uh, grading, right? So, <clears throat> so it's like, how do I navigate that? Because I have this, this window with kids. So, so, and then we have the off times when we're not at work and the family thing. So, so we, as, as fathers, we need to embrace that and we need to say, what is our participation in that? Does that make sense? Okay, so what I'd like you to do, because this text is so valuable, is go again to Deuteronomy chapter six. And this, this text is like, it's like the handbook for parenting. <laughs> there you go. This is, it's like, wait, there's a handbook? My son, true story, my son was giving, he, he, we did this youth outreach um, at our church and my son was, was speaking at it. Um, he's our youth pastor. And he, he started telling a story about a project that myself and his brother were doing. And it was putting this sofa together that came from Ikea. Anyone ever tried to put an Ikea product together? Okay, so here's dad's approach. This is me, okay? This is what I do. I take stuff out of the box and I start putting it together, okay? There's this instruction manual that's irrelevant and I'm putting it together <coughs> and I'm doing this thing and going on and my, my older son who's not involved in the project, it's not his project, he's there, he's looking and he's, it's driving him nuts. He's like, what in the world are you doing? And he, he grabs the instruction manual, it's like, you're on step six. You didn't do steps one through five. <laughs> like he takes out, he's like, what are you doing? And he's pulling stuff out of my hands. He's laying out, he's going, this is how you do the thing. And so, the, so my point in saying that is, there's actually a handbook for parenting. It's Deuteronomy chapter six. And you might be in step six going, I, I didn't know there were instructions. I didn't know that the Bible actually, so I, I really, this is such a helpful passage of scripture. Let's take a look at it. Deuteronomy six. We start at verse four. We saw it last night. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, your soul, and with all your strength. Does that passage sound familiar to you? Does it, does it find itself anywhere else in the Bible? 
I heard a yes. This, when is it? Come on, be bold. The greatest commandment, right? What's the greatest commandment? Right, right. This is where it comes from, right? So when they said, hey, what's the greatest of all commandments? Jesus went here. He said, this is the most important thing, love God. And, and the setting here, he says, hear, oh, who? Israel, the whole congregation, the whole nation. You need to know this. God wants to have a love relationship with you. And then he says in verse seven, teach it to your children. So the objective is, listen, your kids need to know that they can have a love relationship with God. So when I say our goal should be that our kids learn to love God and discover their purpose, do you see where it comes from? This is the most important commandment, that they learn to have a love relationship with God. So then he says this to him, verse six, these words which I command you shall be in your heart and you shall teach them diligently to your children. And so the first thing, fathers, if we are going to help our children to have age-appropriate relationship with God and ultimately come to adult decision for relationship with God, we need to be embracing that ourselves. Like we, that, that, that primary thing, we, the most important thing that you can do for your family is to invest in your relationship with the Lord. Um, <clears throat> if, if your relationship with the Lord is healthy, then God will not allow you to mistreat your spouse, right? Like you get, like, um, Christy and I have gotten in arguments and I've left the room and I've, I'm right or else I wouldn't be arguing. And, uh, and I truthfully, truthfully have this sense, like I you know, settle a little bit and the Lord does not let me treat her like that. He's like, even if you're right, you're wrong in the way you're treating her. God doesn't let me treat my wife inappropriately. If my relationship with the Lord is right, I'm gonna, I'm gonna know how to deal with the challenge that I'm facing with my child or the challenge my child is facing. And so the first thing, he says, these things shall be in you. The number one thing that you can do for your family is, is have and maintain a healthy relationship with the Lord. The number two thing that you can do for your family is to maintain a healthy relationship with your wife. F maintain a healthy relationship with your wife. Those of you that have been married, um, there, there's a guy, um, and I, I heard him at one of the pastor's conferences, his name's Lewis Neely, and he said, I've been, I've been married, something, he said something like this, I've been married to uh, you know, six, different women who all lived in the same body, <laughs> right? And, and just the reality is that, you know, and I'm looking at him and I'm going, yeah, Lewis, you don't look like you looked when this thing started either. But the, um, but the, the reality is like our, we, we change and our marriages change and we need to continue to invest in that relationship and keep a healthy marriage relationship invest in that. The better your relationship is with your spouse, the better you're going to be at this thing of parenting. Um, so invest in your relationship with the Lord, invest in your relationship with your spouse, but then also invest in your children. 
So after he says these things will be in you, he then says, and you shall teach them diligently to your children. And then notice what he says. This is why I say this is the handbook. He says, you shall teach them diligently, verse seven, to your children, and you shall talk with them when you sit in your house, when you walk by the way, when you lie down, and when you rise up. So he uses there four different verbs, and these verbs describe different aspects of life. He talks about sitting, he talks about walking, he talks about lying down, and he talks about rising up. The idea of sitting, you're sitting in your home with your children, and you're teaching them the things of the Lord. The, the, the primary responsibility of discipleship of the children does not rest with the church. The primary responsibility of discipling the children rests with the parents. And that like our children should, should learn. And so if you have small children, they're learning Bible stories. And the learning of Bible stories is, that is a responsibility that the parents hold. And I think that as a father embracing that responsibility is one of the things that you should hold to. Um, my, our story, um, uh, my wife is home with the children and I'm, uh, uh, most of our children's life, I'm pastoring a church. And so I would come home and there were, there were days, I can remember a specific day when I walked in the door and I'm like, honey, I'm home, you know, kind of a thing. And I walk in the door and she says to me, don't touch me. She says, I'm touched out. <laughs> okay. I've had these, these little humans crawling all over me all day long. Our twins, they would, they would crawl when they were infants or toddlers or whatever. She'd go to the bathroom. They would crawl over to the, and they'd put their fingers underneath. She's trying to have a second to go to the bathroom. And these little fingers. And so there's 20 little fingers underneath <laughs> the door like this. Okay. Like, so I come in the door and she's like, you know, take a, take a break. So, so at the end of the day, when it was time to put the kids down, I took that responsibility. I said, this is, this is my time with the boys. And so we'd go upstairs and, uh, and we had, we, um, we, our, our house is kind of interesting, the person that designed it. The rooms are all oversized. So we went ahead and put all four boys in the same bedroom because it was big enough. And I would lay on the floor and they'd lay in their beds and, and we'd sit there and I would either tell them a Bible story or sometimes I would say, okay, somebody pick an animal. Okay, somebody else pick a place. Okay, somebody else pick a, a, you know, a scenario, whatever. And they throw it and then I would interwove a Bible story into whatever it is. So we're, we're monkeys on, a, on the planet Mars, you know, and we're being attacked by. And it's like, okay, what Bible story can we weave into this? You know, this what Bible principle? And so we would have kind of an extended little uh, putting the kids to bed. It wasn't just, okay, good night pray with them real quick. We'd have an extended time. I tricked them because I, they would think they were staying up late. But all I was really doing was just putting them to bed 15 minutes earlier so that they could stay up 15 minutes longer while I laid with them. But that was our time. And I treasured that time. And they treasured it. It was, it was a time. We're sitting there. We're, and so we're sitting with them. 
and we're instructing them in the things of God. They're learning the Bible stories. They're getting the foundation of what the Bible is all about, who Jesus is. And, and you know, as they get older, the conversations change in that time. Um, and so I would say that you wanna establish some way that as a dad, you are investing in teaching your children the things of God. And you say, well, Jim, I don't know those things. Great, learn them with your kids. I don't know Bible stories. Well, if you read the Bible to them, you'll know them. <laughs> just take it out, just go, well, we're gonna read this story together and teach these things to your kids. So that's an important, that's an important part of parenting and it's something that I think fathers we can embrace that we, and so our children are learning who God is and what relationship with God is like from their dad. He goes on, he says, the next verb he uses, he says, you shall teach them when you sit in your house, and then he says, and when you walk by the way. Okay, the, the, the verb walk implies an entirely different scene than the verb sit, right? The verb sit, it's, a, it's stationary, the verb walk is active. So you're, you're moving, you're going through life. And I think the idea here is that because life is the, is the backdrop um, through which God reveals things about us to us. For instance, you can think you're a very patient person until somebody makes you wait and then suddenly you realize how impatient you are. You can think of yourself as a, very, as a very calm person until something rattles you, right? Um, and so the backdrop, um, there's a, a pastor by the name of John Corson, and John Corson, this was early on, I was a young man, first kind of learning the Bible, and I, I remember hearing John tell a story about driving, he lives in Oregon, he's driving, to work in the morning, he has his cup of hot cocoa and he sets it on the floorboard of his car and he's driving and he hits a pothole and the pothole causes the cup to tip over and spill the hot cocoa all over the floorboard of the car and on his feet and he gets upset and he starts complaining about the roads and about the government and about everything that's wrong with the world because they should fix these potholes. And he said, when I kind of settled down a little bit, the Lord said to me, are you done? And, uh, and then he started kind of having this conversation with the Lord that went something like, John, who put the cocoa in the cup? Well, I did, Lord. And who, put the, who brought the cup into the car? Well, I did, Lord. And who set the cup on the floorboard? Well, I did, Lord. So whose fault is it that cocoa is all over the floorboard? The st state of, of Oregon and the city of whatever didn't put the cocoa in the cup. They, and the pothole didn't put the cocoa in the cup. All it did is expose that there's cocoa in the cup. Does that make sense? And so life will often expose to us what's in us. And so, so God uses life to expose something that's in us. So then life also can become not just the backdrop to expose, but life can become the tools by which to address those things. And so with our children. Um, again, I had four sons we spend a lot of time with sports. And it's not uncommon in sports for a child to experience something that creates disappointment. So they, they're, they're playing, they're doing their best, and 
they're sitting on the bench and they're upset about it. And that becomes an opportunity for me to walk with them along the way. How do we deal with disappointment? How do we deal with the fact that you're being overlooked and being disappointed? Is everything political and it's the coach's fault and this is terrible and we're quitting the team? Am I gonna go call a, coach, go call a meeting with the coach and say, it's not fair, my son needs to play? Or am I gonna sit with my son and say, how do we do this? Is there a way that you can work harder and, and to, uh, to uh, you know, sort of hone your task better so that you can earn that playing time? Is God doing something different with your life? Or how do we deal with the fact that we're gonna be disappointed? Because listen, in life, are we gonna face that? Is, is that a reality of life? Are you gonna work harder than one of your coworkers and they're gonna get a raise? <laughs> right? I mean, that's, good. that's a reality. You say, hey, wait a minute, how do you know what happened this week? Right? I just had a conversation with one of my son's wives and he, he just had his, his assessment, um, work performance assessment. He got a raise. He's, he's happy that he's being recognized, but he's also looking going, I also know these guys all got raises and these guys are terrible workers. And so he's living in that environment. It's like when he, when he looked at it, it's like this is really just a cost of living raise, it's not really a performance raise. And it's like, well, how are you gonna deal with that, James? How are you gonna, you know? And it's like, well, I walked through that when I had, James had the, the number one on-base percentage on his baseball team in high school, and he rode the bench. <laughs> it's like, this doesn't make any sense. It is, the number two on-base percentage was his twin brother. They shared a position in the field. It's like, are you insane as a coach? You got, this guy's gonna be on base. Garrett, like, there's a higher percentage that this guy's gonna be on base than anybody else. And they're sitting on the bench. Well, how do you deal with that as a parent? You have to, how do we deal with disappointment? Does that make sense? Again, I'm only, I only have my stories, so I can't tell your stories. Um, <clears throat> so, as we're walking along the way, when something happens, when you have, I don't have daughters. Um, my wife was a daughter, so she has some experience with it. But you know you have you have a you have a, a a child and and they have a problem with their friend group and their friend group is somehow mistreating them or you know pushing them away. How do you deal with that? Well, you're walking along the way. What does the Bible say that we that we do to people who are unkind to us? What does the Bible say? How, what does the Bible say about forgiveness? What does the Bible say about loving your enemy? What does the Bible? And we're we're actually walking through life with them. We're resisting that sense that we wanna put our cape on and we wanna go change the problem and we're embracing the fact that here's their story, what does the Bible say about that? And so we're walking with them along the way. I mentioned that my oldest son um, was uh, interested, drawn towards surfing. And he, um, and I also mentioned that that was my background. I grew up in Huntington Beach, California, kind of by default. You're a hyperactive kid that your parents want to, they, they want a break, so they send me to the beach, right? So, so um, uh, when my son started surfing, he, he's also competitive, and he's, he wants to do things well. So he would surf competitively, the family would come down, we'd watch the event. Inevitably, unless you win, there's some point in the contest where you're losing. It's like, it works kind of like tennis, where you, know, you play this, there's, there's this round, 
You play this person, if you, if you win that match, you go to the next round, you go to the next round surfing until ultimately there's just, a, just the few people left in the final. And so, you know, Nate would reach whatever point he would reach when he would lose, he would come in and his mother and his grandmother would say things like, well, you were the cutest one out there. <laughs> you did so good, we want ice cream. And then they would, he would come to dad and we'd get, we'd get in the car. It was always he and I driving back together separate from everyone else. And we'd get in the car and I would say to him, do you want to talk to coach or do you want to talk to dad? Like, if you want to talk to your dad right now, I'm so proud of you. It's awesome. I mean, I love watching you serve. It was a great day. You had a great attitude. It's wonderful. But if you want to talk to coach, and 100% of the time, he would say, I want to talk to coach. And what, what doing that did is it made this distinction. Dad's not harping on him. He's actually, and so, so I'd say, well, here's what you did wrong. Here's, if, if we're going to get to the next level, this is what you need to do. And, and he's like taking it in. But he's not being harped on by his dad because he, he, he asked for it. My twin sons, they grew up hearing my stories. And they knew that as a child, I played sports. I also had told my family very openly that I was a terrible baseball player. <laughs> when I played Little League, I played second base. The reason that I played second base is because I was a terrible outfielder. I was too slow for shortstop. <laughs> I could barely, like, I, I just was not a good baseball player. They thought the least damage Jim can do, there's less balls rolling on the right side of the infield, let's put him there. Now, I'm not, I wasn't like, you know, throw the ball into the stands kind of things. I just didn't, uh, didn't excel at that. And so my twin sons chose baseball as their sport. They're basically saying, Dad, one year Little League, we know more than you do. We do not want you coaching us. There was not one time where my twin sons, after, after a game, came to me and said, hey, can you coach us with this? They wanted, they wanted ice cream and a hug. Right? That's the relationship they wanted. And so it was like, okay, well, I understand this. Does that make sense? So I'm, I'm embracing the fact that my children are different and what I'm able to invest into their life. So as you walk with them along the way, with, with Nate, when those, not only do we have those coaching moments, but surfing became the backdrop for teaching. We'd be sitting in the water waiting for waves and we're waiting and we'd be talking. And that's where we're talking about, about life and about how to walk with the Lord and how to face things. And that's where we were bound really together in that relationship. So there's other verbs that are here. He says, in addition, to <clears throat> in addition to sitting with them, in addition to walking with them, he says, when you lie down and when you rise up. So what's, the imp what's implied in that? Lie down and rise up. What? Go to bed and, Go to bed and getting up, right? It's, it's daily, right? It's every day. Um, what <laughs> there's an interesting story um, in, the, in John's Gospel. And it's the story, it takes place around, it's in, it's in the, um, Jerusalem, and it takes place around this pool. And there were invalid people that sat around this pool, and they believed that an angel periodically would come down and into the water, and the evidence of that, the water would get stirred. And so they believed that the first person that would get into that pool would then receive a healing. So that was the common belief. Now, 
some things must have happened around this pool because not only did the Jewish people believe that an angel stirred the water, the Egyptians, the Romans, and the Greeks also believed something would happen because there were temples built to the Roman god of fortune, uh, the Greek god, or the Greek god of fortune, the Roman god of luck, and the Egyptian god of healing. We're, we're in, so in this area, so right there, you're in Jerusalem, the city of God with the temple, and just off from it is this, this pool with these covered porticos and temples built to these idols, all that had to do with some miracle that would take place. So something must have happened there. <laughs> like there, there must have been something. Um, and and uh, they, you know, there was this belief. So here's this guy laying there. He's been an invalid for his life. And Jesus comes up to him. And Jesus says, do you want to be made well? And the guy says to him, I don't have anybody to put me in the water. He's thinking that what he needs is this miraculous moment, this event to happen in the life. And if this moment happens in my life, my life will be changed. And Jesus just says to him, stand up and walk. What he needs really is just to do what God's word says. God speaks to him, do what God's word says. And when he does that, his life changes. He thinks he needs this moment in the pool, this miraculous encounter. And the reason I'm sharing that is that what our children need most is daily investment, regular investment from, the, from their fathers in their life. He says, when you rise up and when you sit down. He needs, they need the, us to be a part of their life. It's not that they need, family vacations are awesome. They're wonderful. They're, they're part of the tools that we, we can use to get to that end, right? Our goal, our objective of doing this. Um, but, you know, being distant and then just having an elaborate vacation is not what your kids need. They need a dad that rises up with them and lies down with them. They need a dad that participates in their life, that teaches them the things of God daily. And then those other moments become, become like supercharged moments to make those investments. So he says, here's the playbook for parenting. He says, we're teaching our, our kids about the things of God. We're teaching it to them when they lie down or rather when we sit down, we're, they're learning the things. When we walk through life together, the experience becomes an opportunity to explain to them, listen, this is, this is what God it would have for us. This is what you do when you're mistreated. This is what you do when you succeed. This is what you do when, when you have trouble with others. This is what you do when you see a friend who, who turns from you and is mean to you or whatever. This is how you do. And then daily investment. He goes on and he says this, verse eight. He says, you shall bind them as a sign on your hand. They'll be as front before your eyes and you shall write them on the doorpost of your house and on your gates. So I think the verse eight there um, really helps to modify the idea of they will be in you. Verse nine, he says, write them on the doorpost of your house and on your gates. Um, the, I, the idea there is the home itself. And we talked a little bit last night in our time of worship 
about that word train. Remember I mentioned um, train up a child in the way that he shall go. And when he's old, he'll not depart from the path. And what did I tell you? Every other time that word is translated, how's it used? Dedicate. And we see in the Bible the need to dedicate ourselves to the Lord, the need to dedicate our children to the Lord, but we also talked about the idea of dedicating our house to the Lord. And do you remember the scene? It's from Deuteronomy 20. You got the, you got the people together saying, listen, when an enemy comes and they're attacking us and we're getting ready to go to battle, if there's anybody who's not dedicated their house to the Lord, more important than you putting on the sword and the shield and stepping out against the enemy, more important than that is that your house is dedicated to the Lord. So if it hasn't been dedicated, get home and dedicate your house to the Lord before you go out and fight for the Lord, right? I mean, that's a powerful picture. The house being devoted to the Lord. This, this statement gives that implication. In your home, on the doorpost of your house and on its gates. One way to look at that is as, as you go in and as you go out, um, the house is devoted to the Lord. Here's, here's an expression that I've developed out of that. And that is we want to create kingdom culture in our homes. We want to create kingdom culture in our homes, that the values within our, our home are the values of God's word. Let me, let me say two things on that subject. Um, I mentioned before that I didn't grow up in a, a believing home. I didn't grow up in a religious home. Um, I, prior to hearing the gospel, and by the way, I didn't hear the gospel at a church. I heard the gospel at an amphitheater. Um, the, the place where, is it? No, it's not. Okay, but a place called Pacific Amphitheater in Anaheim, California. This is, this is totally unrelated to what we're talking about, but Zach needs to hear this. So, <laughs> so um, I, the, the outreach that I got saved at was sponsored by Calvary Chapel in Costa Mesa. The outreach took place in the city of Anaheim. That would be like uh, Calvary Chapel, Miami, sponsoring an outreach in Fort Lauderdale, okay? The chances are the likelihood of people getting saved at that outreach ever coming into this church is pretty small, right? Those are communities away from each other. Then the crowded hustle of Southern California. Pastor Chuck's heart was to reach people for the kingdom. It wasn't to fill his seats, and I, I, I'd found this out years later. I didn't know anything. I didn't know anything about Christianity. I didn't need, know anything about Jesus. But you need to hear that. So you guys didn't. So, um, but the, uh, but, so I go to this, this uh, outreach. That's where I hear the gospel. I didn't grow up in a Christian home. So as a result, my parents were not interested in creating a kingdom culture within the home. That wasn't what they were doing. But it was the only experience that I had. So now I'm, I get saved. Um, Christy and I establish a relationship. We learn in that relationship how to function as believers, as a believered couple, a believing couple. I had to, I had to relearn that. Um, and then we start having children. And I just naturally approach parenting the way I was parented. And um, my wife grew up in a believing home. 
Her parents were both the, were both the first of their families to come to the Lord. And they, their lives completely changed and their approach to life completely changed. So she's growing up in a believing home with these biblical values. So we come together. And one of the things that took me a while to notice, but I realized that my upbringing, the answer in our home was no, unless there was a good reason for the answer to be yes. Okay, anything that we, other than like my parents created, like here's the, here's the boundaries that you live in. If we had anything outside of that, and I asked for it, the answer was no, unless I could convince them for the answer to be yes. So um, I grew up at a time, some of you I'm looking at your faces and I'm thinking you did too. Um, you grew up when TV used to go to bed at night. Some of you guys remember that? There was a TV actually went to bed. One o'clock in the morning, there was no more TV. And it, it turned off and there would, you would turn the television on any channel. And by the way, this is how you turn the channels. And I lived in Orange County, which is right next to the heart of TV. LA, right? And there were only, there was two, four, five, seven, nine, eleven, and thirteen. Those were the only television channels. And then there was UHF, which was super fuzzy and weird. Okay, that's it. That was TV. And at one o'clock in the morning, TV went to sleep. And it didn't wake up until 6 a.m. Okay, that's what time TV woke up. I had a point in telling you that I completely forgot what it was. I don't even remember what I was talking about. So, what was I talking about? The boundaries. Thank you. See, you listen. So, so listen, we had a bedtime as kids, and, but periodically there'd be a special that was on. Eight o'clock was our bedtime when we were little, and, but periodically there's a special. It's like, it was like at Halloween time, the Snoopy or Peanuts Halloween special but it was outside of the framework. You go to bed at eight. And I'd plead with my parents to let me stay up until 8.30 to watch Snoopy's Halloween special, right? You get the idea? Like it was the answer. Mom, can we stay up? No. Mom, can we? No, that was, that was it. It's in this framework, this is where we live. My wife grew up in an environment of grace. The answer was yes, unless there was a good reason for the answer to be no. And I remember the day we are, we've, my son Nate is six years old. The twins are four years old, they're not quite four. And Shane is still a little guy and we're, we're gonna, she's made lunch. And they said, can we go sit outside on the grass and eat lunch? And I said, no. And I went, and when I said it, I thought, why? Why can't they sit outside? I, honestly, I'm going, I'm having this whole like, this whole thing is happening inside me. I'm rethinking my entire approach of parenthood because I asked if they could eat on the grass. And I was, think, I was going, oh my gosh, why not? There's absolutely no good reason that they can't go right out the screen um, porch, sit on the grass and have their meal. And it hit me and Christy and I sat down and I thought, Chris, I think I've been approaching this wrong. And she's going, yeah, you. So, <laughs> but this idea that what Christy did is she infused that grace into our home. And grace became the flavor in our house. That doesn't mean our kids were running amok. It meant that, that our framework included 
We just want the, we want the experience to be that they understand God's goodness and God's grace in our home. That if I'm telling them they can't do something, I am having reason why they can't do something. I had an interesting conversation with my daughter-in-law on the drive down here. We stopped. She lives, um, my son and daughter-in-law live in Pompano. We stopped by the house. We took her to lunch. She is, um, she's a real thinker. She's, um, she is both um, a U.S. citizen and a French citizen. She's fluent in French. She wouldn't say that she's fluent in Spanish, but don't, don't try to um, hide things from her by speaking Espanol. <laughs> she understands every word and she can talk to you. She's a very intelligent young lady. And she starts telling us about this book that she's reading. They don't have kids and they're not thinking at this moment planning for kids. But she's reading this book by this, this English American woman who uh, lives in France and has children and she's looking at the way French children behave and the way American children behave, and she's just trying to assess this. And what are certain traits that she sees that are positive in French children that might not be in English children? And she tells me this. She says that what the author does is she, she recognizes that in the French language, when the parents are actually telling a child they can't do something, like a literal translation of the statement that they're making is not just, no, you can't do that. It's, you don't have the right to do that. that you, you have the right to do this. You don't have the right to do that. And she talks about how, and again, this is her assessment. I don't know. I'm not French. I don't speak French. Um, <clears throat> um, she talks about how they have developed this framework and we live within this framework. You have all the freedoms within this framework, but you don't have freedom outside of that framework. Does that make sense? So when you say, Can we? no, you don't have the right to do that. That's outside of the framework. And I thought, oh my gosh, she's articulating what I'm trying to articulate. And that is, it's not that do whatever you want. <laughs> That's not what I'm saying. I'm saying we've developed an atmosphere within the home. We understand the boundaries that God has for us. And we have grace within those boundaries. But when the kids want to do something, it's like, no, 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 no. You don't have the right to do that. We're, we're following Jesus and that's outside the boundaries. So that's one thing that I would say. Establishing kingdom culture in our homes is the idea of establishing grace within our homes. Our children are understanding what the, what the framework and the boundaries are, they have freedom within those boundaries, but they don't have freedom to go beyond those boundaries. You can't behave that way. We, we would use a term like this, not all the time, but we would, you know, the kids were doing something, we'd say, listen, you're a Gallagher, and Gallagher's don't do that. You're a Gallagher, and Gallagher's don't do that. Now, um, the idea is we have a value system that we've created within our home. It, we need to live within that value system, but there's grace expressed in it. The second thing is I told you I'd tell you two things on that idea of writing it on the doorpost and putting it on the house. And the second thing is this, and that is that um, there are things that are appropriate for you as a parent to, to do or to, or to watch or to be involved in that, would, that are inappropriate for a 10-year-old son or an eight-year-old daughter. There are things that are appropriate for a nine-year-old 
that are inappropriate for a four-year-old. Okay, we recognize that. We rec- and so in, in at, to some degree, we have different standards for you as parents than as your children, and you have different standards for your children, different genders, different ages. Um, I have a friend who they have been very, very strict with bedtimes with their children. They have three children. And they've been very strict with the bedtimes because they've, it's, it's like an age-appropriate thing. So when you're this age and under, you go to bed at this time. But as soon as you hit that mark, you get a half hour more. And, and then when you hit this mark, you get a half hour more, right? They have a ceiling. They don't let the kids up all night. But, but the idea is, and so the kids that, you know, when they're, when they're getting towards that, that next you know, level, it's like they're so excited. Like, I have my birthday and I get to stay up a half hour later, right? I mean, it's, that's one of the things that that's a tool that they've implemented in the framework in their home. Our, our kids all stayed up to the same time. So we approached it differently. But, um, but my point in it is that there are age appropriate um, uh, standards within the home. What is not appropriate is to have differing moral standards within the home. It's not okay for me because I'm an adult to watch things that are inappropriate just because I'm an adult. So in our home, we had a standard in our home that we don't watch R-rated movies. We just don't watch R-rated movies. It doesn't mean our kids don't watch R-rated movies. We just don't watch R-rated movies. Like that's just, look at it and just say, listen, if Hollywood, who I don't think has a filter, is telling me that I should filter this, <laughs> I should probably listen. Now again, I'm not putting that pressure on you. I'm not saying, say, well, Jim, what about this movie or whatever? I'm not saying, I'm just saying as a standard, we just kind of did this. So it wasn't that we put the kids to bed and then we watch something that's inappropriate. It's not, so for them, it's like, no, no, listen, that show is not appropriate for you. It's also not appropriate for us. It's just simply inappropriate. And so one of the things we helped to establish a standard that we say is true for all of us. I read a book, I think it's on the, the recommended book list. I don't endorse any books. So I only, you know, I'll, I'll read a book and if there's one nugget in it that I take home, I think it was a good book. I don't remember everything about the book, but it's a book called Raising a Modern Day Knight. And <clears throat> the way they present the information in the book is kind of this idea. First thing they do is they sort of make these, the, the knights in that era of English history, they make these guys these moral heroes. I'm not quite sure <laughs> that they were what you're describing them to be, but in order to tell the tale that they're telling in the book, they create this model. The thing that's in the book that I think is golden is they present this idea that in American culture, we don't have a right to passage from childhood to adulthood, right? There's no right to passage. And in some cultures, if, if you can climb this tree and you can get this coconut, you're now a man. Right? Or with, with you know, this, this pocket knife, if you can go tackle the woolly mammoth and bring home his liver, you're a man. Okay? Or what, you know, whatever. I'm just making this stuff up. But you, know, you get this idea. It's like it's a, it's a right to passage. It's stepping in to manhood. In America, we simply don't have that. We, we have an arbitrary age. We say at 18 years old, you're now an adult. 
and there's no right to passage. And so what they point out in this book is that because of that, it's, it's, it's possible for people to, um, for children to think adult, being an adult is being able to do the things that adults do that kids aren't allowed to do. And they narrow down in this book to three things. Drinking, cussing, and having sex. Because kids are told not to do that and get in trouble if they do, right? And adults seem to do that all, ready for this, willy-nilly. Right? They just, it's just no big deal. It's all, like, those are the things that are all over movie, all over television, all over life. Even they see their parents, they see their, their older relatives behaving like that, and they think, okay, that must be adulthood. So then you get children who are pretending to be grown up by cussing, using substances, and having sex with each other. And so what they point out in this book is that we, we kind of need to establish in our children what does adulthood really look like and how do we get there? And I think part of doing that is by removing some of those things that, hey, my parents do this. They, sh- you know, the, I, I imagine, does anybody ever, did anyone ever get their mouth washed out with soap? You did? <laughs> oh my gosh, I'm glad I didn't grow up in your home. So <laughs> I thought that was just a Christmas story thing. But you know, if, if, you, get, if you get in trouble for using foul language, as a child, or your, you know, your child gets in trouble and they hear you doing it, what do they think? Well, as soon as I get to be a grown-up, I can cuss all I want because grown-ups get to do that. But if we can establish a standard or a home that just says, this is how we all, we're all trying to follow Jesus and honor him, it's, you, don't, like, you don't reach a point in your Christian life where you get to be carnal, right? I'm so mature now, I can be carnal. We grow out of those things, not into those things. So... Wrapping this all up, as a father speaking to fathers, what I would say is embrace the the opportunity and the responsibility to invest spiritual things into your children. My way of doing that was I embraced the evening time. That became my time. I, Christy, we'd go upstairs, Christy almost never participated in those evening devotions. Not that she didn't want to. She's exhausted from raising, especially when our kids are little. That was an opportunity for me, dad, to pour into my kids. Secondly, embrace the responsibility and the opportunity to use whatever incidents life throws at you and your family as a way to say, what does God's word say to us? What is, how, what is God teaching us through this? And, and bring your kids into that. They'll understand that. Um, and this is something that we do regularly. We're not just looking for the big moments like we're getting thrown in the pool of Siloam. We're, or is it Bethsaida, whatever pool that is. And uh, we're looking for the daily investments. And then we wanna have an atmosphere in the home that is most conducive to our kids learning to love and follow Jesus, a kingdom culture in our home. Um, And part of that is making sure that we are living by the same standard that we would hope that our kids would live under. So Father, thank you for each man here. Thank you for 
the investment that they're making in the life of their children. And uh, Lord, we know that um, we know that there are times when we feel like we're failing. There are times when we feel confused and have no idea what we're doing. Um, there are times when we're afraid of what is showing up in the, in the expression in our children. Um, but we're thankful, Lord, that you are for us. We're thankful that you love us, you love our marriage, you love our family, you love our children, you have a plan for them. And so, Lord, we just want to, we want to do whatever our part is in reaching that goal. In Jesus' name, amen.